Hello, everyone. Um, welcome back. Um, so, uh, I am required to inform you that we only have two copies of the book left. So, um, yeah. So, um, if you if you want to, yeah, we should auction him. Uh, there is someone at the back who's willing to sell his copy for twenty quid. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if you if you do want to grab a copy um, while Natalie's still here, uh, you can get it signed. Uh, but otherwise, we now uh, come on to my favourite portion of the afternoon, which is the audience Q&A. Um, so <laughs> I can already see some eager hands up. So uh, because I'm expecting quite a lot of questions today, um, it's me and Stephen, so we'll both run around. Um, we're, we're being recorded for the podcast, so please don't swear. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I know. Oh, it's all right. We can, we can bleep it out, but it just makes Sid's job easier. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, so we start here. Uh, is that working? Um, I listened to you on a podcast uh, saying that you liked this book by oh, Dale yes. Stripe. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's called Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile. And it, it's, a, it's about Andrea Dunbar, who you might need to be a certain vintage to know was a proper working class writer. And I think based upon her experiences, one of her problems was that she was kind of co-opted by you know, the trendy folk at uh, the Royal Court, and you know, yeah. that was one of her problems. Now, I kind of, I was, I was also listening quite recently to Darren McGarvey, who I'm sure you all know wrote, wrote Poverty Safari, and he was talking about culture as not a continuum, but he sees middle class culture and working class culture as two separate and parallel things, and I, that's, that struck a real chord with me, but it's Problematic, but I just wondered what you thought of that. Uh, that that's very interesting. I um, I actually haven't I hadn't heard that theory before about them being kind of stratified in that way or being kind of like not continuing. But I guess there is. I mean, and if that is the case, then the kind of middle class culture is like winning at the moment. If if there was a dialogue at least between the two in like previous decades, then then the working class voice has been all, all but erased. The problem I think with things like poverty tourism, which I think is a massive problem. And I get frustrated because people make that accusation against Ken Loach, which I think is completely unfounded, because actually I think he's one of the few people who intimately sort of understands these things and is writing about them kind of from that lens. Um, one thing I talk about in the book quite a lot is how there's been a... I think there's been, there's been a, a sense of guilt and... Um, and self-consciousness on the part of the kind of legacy media that they're not dealing with class enough. And one way that they've tried to fix that is they... And I'm talking through TV, because that's the easiest kind of uh, thing to talk about, I think, in terms of it being the thing that is the most kind of, like, mm, mm, has the biggest audience. Um, but it's happening in books as well and in films, etc. Um, but one way that I think that the legacy media has tried to fix it is by saying, OK, well, we'll make more shows about working-class communities. But the problem is, is if they're authored by... So if the director is middle-class, if the producer is middle-class, if the TV presenter is middle-class, then what you end up creating is something that's deeply patronising, really, really sardonic, really wry... Um, and so in the, at the kind of more extreme end of that, you see things like the kind of reality TV show formats. So there's the obviously really extreme things like Jeremy Carl, which has thankfully been cancelled. Um, but things like educating Yorkshire, educating Manchester, those sorts of shows, you know, in Essex as well. And that's very condescending. It's very kind of um, voyeuristic and uh, exploitative. Um, but then you, to a quieter extent, you even get it in the kind of like neutral documentary format. So even in things like Louis Theroux, sometimes you see him going into communities that he isn't a part of and doesn't have that kind of like 
very nuanced understanding of. And you can't help but actually create something that feels like someone, kind of, you know, that feels, you know, in the dynamics, almost quite colonial, just some, someone going in here and kind of pointing a camera and a microphone at these strange subjects and what they're doing. And that's sort of been the order of play. That, that's basically as, as good as it's got in terms of, like, working class representation in the media over the past few decades. Um, and obviously the way that you solve that is you, the people making the TV shows have to be from those backgrounds in order to be able to understand them intimately. Um, I, also, I did an interview recently for Tribune magazine and I was talking to them about people like Carolina Hearn and um, Steve Coogan. And what I find really interesting about them is they were from working class backgrounds and it means that what they were able to do is they were actually able to be very critical of working class communities as well. So Carolina Hearn never shied away from the fact that actually a lot of the working class community that she was part of could be very racist or could be very bigoted in lots of ways. But she was able to do that in an even-handed way because she knew the kind of intimate, she knew intimately the kind of complex dynamics at play of like people that are marginalised and treated badly aren't aren't guilt-free, aren't also guilty of like some terrible prejudices and biases. But the fact is that the way that she was able to portray it was fair and even-handed because she came from that background. Um, and so I think it's not just, it's about the lens really. It's what, you know, we talk about like the male gaze, but there's also like a class gaze. And I think that's playing out in the, in the way that the media is sort of going about things at the moment. But yeah, I love that book, by the way. I should also recommend that one. It's called Black Teeth and a Beautiful Smile by Adele Stripe. Hi, uh, when you talked about uh, education and Tony Blair Premiership, how you know, put that emphasis in uh, facilitating education for everybody in the 90s. However, he was the prime minister who got rid of student, uh, student grants. Um, how can we explain that? Yeah, I, I think there's lots of problems with the education reforms under Tony Blair. I think in lots of ways it, it was helpful to somebody, I mean, somebody, I think, kind of culturally he made higher education seem more accessible to people. So it seemed like a possibility for people from kind of lower middle class and working class backgrounds. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it, it, it seemed like it was far more possible and open to you and it was something that you could go and do. In terms of the kind of like the finances that were available, it wasn't great. I mean, there wasn't the financial support for people to go and do that. And like I said, you know, a lot of us ended up saddled with huge amounts of debt at the end of it. And we were actually told that it was not, it, was, it wasn't even really narrated as much of an option. It was almost narrated as a kind of like necessity. Like if you want to get a job, you have to have a degree as a minimum. So you, you're obligated to get into it. At the time for me, it was 21 grand grants worth of debt. You're obligated to do that because that's actually the, that's the kind of like bottom threshold now for getting a job. Um, and obviously then there were no jobs at the end of it. So I, I completely agree with you. I think that it was kind of like a cultural phenomenon of like higher education is now open and more accessible to people, but actually in terms of the finances, it wasn't for many people and it's got worse in the past couple of decades. I mean, even the, so I just want to add, because this is my experience as well, even the minimum salary that they said you had to start paying back the student loan, at the time it was quite a lot of money. And, yeah. uh, you know, 15 grand a year was a lot. I was on 13 grand a year in my first job, mm -hmm. uh, well, in my first office job. Um, it was three pounds an hour before that. And um, so it was, yeah, 15 grand was seen as like a reasonable amount of money to be able to afford to start paying back a loan. Yeah. And, uh, and then that suddenly was not a good amount of money by the time everyone finished university. Yeah. So anyway, and so in many cases, you'd only be paying off the interest anyway because <laughs> I've, I've still got I'm I'm 33 and I've still got six grand left of my um, yeah. loan to pay off for one year of university. Um, I didn't finish university. So. Go freelance. You never have to pay it. <laughs> well, you know, it's optional, so you can actually opt to like not pay it back, which is a lot. It's something that a lot of people I know are doing. They're just like, well, I'm not going to pay it back because it was a scam. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, 
questions? Yeah, thank you. I was really inspired by um, your talk. It was oh, brilliant. I'm really glad I'm here. Because it connected lots of different thoughts I've been having, which have disconnected. I, I saw the Ken, new fantastic Ken Loach film at the Labour <laughs> Party conference. And he talked about how it was, where people were asking him where it was going to be shown. And he was saying, oh, we're trying to get it out to community groups. There's a limited kind of cinema release, blah, blah, blah. blah. Although it seems a bit more un unlimited now. I've seen it in mm -hmm. lots of places. But it, it, as I was walking away from that, I was thinking, this, the, the film, when I was your age, like Kathy Come Home came out mm -hmm. on the telly. And it affected everybody. Mm -hmm. And it led to the creation of Shelter, I believe. So right. it had this massive kind of social impact at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still homelessness, obviously. But I was just thinking how limited, I mean, you're explaining what, how the media has got fragmented. And those, um, the same f films are not being seen, or that kind of film is not being seen on a, on a large scale, mm -hmm. on the television. It's not mm -hmm. there, we're not seeing that. And the thing you said about, um, uh, Boris, how does Boris Johnson get away with being as shabby as he is? Mm -hmm. Because he's kind of posh. Mm -hmm. And how uh, when Michael Foote got absolutely vilified for wearing what was described as a donkey jacket at the Cenotaph mm -hmm. that time, which wasn't a donkey jacket, mm -hmm. and how, again, they used those kind of things. And it's because Michael Foote was going to challenge the status quo. Yeah. And, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn will be vilified for falling asleep during the, the England game mm -hmm. and being photographed on a train um, <laughs> because he, he's, he's about trying to challenge the status yeah. quo. Um, I, but I came here to try and, what are the answers to this? Right. Right. So what do we steal? Where do we steal from? <laughs> I bought the book so well, I yeah. can find <laughs> out. <laughs> but I wondered if you could talk a bit about that. So this, it is interesting because one of the things that I'm worried about is that, like, well, one of the things I'm complaining about is how everything's been individualised, right? So what I didn't want to prescribe was a lot of solutions that basically put it again back on you to go and find ways to kind of circumnavigate all this stuff because it is, you know, it's systemic. Um, but there are a few things that I think we can do. I think, okay, so a couple of them that I recommend is that I think that the kind of legacy media is like is essentially obsolete and redundant. It's not doing anything. It's not telling the stories that need to be told. It's not because it's basically given over to market logic. It's massive. You know, places like Penguin and Faber, these you know they're big, big publishers, and they're sort of driven by market imperatives. Um, also, the BBC is sort of held to account in lots of different ways, which may prevent it from being able to do that. Channel Four has got lots of problems. I wrote a piece recently about Top Boy. Um, Top Boy, by the way, was like the most successful show. It was like Channel 4's most successful TV drama um, at the time, by the time of the second season. Do you know Top Boy? It's the show in Tottenham about the kind of kids that live on a council, or kind of gang members that live on a council estate in Tottenham. Um, but it was like, it was Channel 4's most, like one of their most popular dramas, and Channel 4 dropped it at the height of its popularity on the grounds that it just, you know, it just kind of run its course, but everyone's gagging for a third season or whatever, and it took Drake, who's a, dra a rapper in Canada, to watch it by chance one day on his TV and say this was really good, and then go to Netflix in the USA to get it recommissioned. Because there's no appetite here in the UK to kind of keep these things that are telling these stories, that are representing these groups outside of the mainstream, in the kind of mainstream avenues of culture. Um, 
So I thought that that's just quite an interesting, it's a sort of a side. Um, but so one of the things I think is that we can re sort of reject a lot of the kind of like mainstream avenues of media and culture. And there are so many alternatives now. It's just a kind of like, it's a residual sense of like prestige and like respect for these institutions and these organizations that's preventing us from properly embracing these things. So Repeater that put out my book, for example, are author, you know, publishing lots of like really influential authors at the moment, but they're just kind of flying under the radar because they're not as well known. But we can embrace kind of independent media. We can embrace like an independent um, kind of video company, especially also on account of the internet. Like there's kind of been a like kind of plethoration of um, alternative media being produced. So we just kind of have to stop invest, like investing our money in it. You've got places like Tribune, which is uh, and Jacobin, which are left-wing magazines that you can start giving your money to, as opposed to kind of relying on the Guardian for their like one left-wing op-ed every three months. You know, um, against kind of a tide of like centrist just posturing. Um, like instead of getting frustrated about it, there are alternatives being created. So start channeling your money there, start channeling your support there far more. Um, and so I kind of I frame that as theft because it's sort of it's sort of stealing the kind of prestige and the respect that these institutions once had from them. And it extends as well to places like the Tate, you know, the Tate the Tate franchise and and, and those kind of mainstream galleries, etc., that kind of have the same programming month after month after month of like these kind of canonical artists that are kind of um, also kind of hailing from those traditions, etc. So there's that. Um, there is the, uh, also the idea that um, we basically becoming much more kind of mercenary in your kind of uh, attitude towards work. So basically stop sort of respecting your employer and stop respecting your job and seeing it for what it is, which is an opportunity to get cash to survive. But it's a system that doesn't value you and it doesn't place any kind of respect at your door, so you shouldn't in re by reverse. And so it just means, it's a, it's a like slight shift, but as opposed to kind of getting sucked into kind of like the softer parts of work, which are, you know, that the HR team does for like team bonding and like going, you know, doing events and stuff like that, say, no, I come here to earn my money and I get out. Like, I, you, you, you haven't bought any more than that from me. Um, <laughs> um, and so, and yeah, so it's saying like, I'm stealing back a bit of my time, you know, if, and protecting that a little bit more and protect, but it, not just time, but like your kind of mental well-being, et cetera, you know, just don't take the stress of work home with you. Just, and if you're finding that your work is doing that, get another, to be honest, you can get another job. Like this is what I was doing, these kind of like media jobs, because I was feeling like I had to work in that kind of industry and I had to be doing something like that. And actually, as soon as I started, I just teach kids now and I work in pubs and bars and I do little bits of freelance writing or whatever, I'm actually making the same amount of money but it's just that lack of, you know, that I shifted my thinking from thinking that I had to have one of these sort of like white collar jobs in order to kind of get some kind of, have some kind of social standing or some kind of respect to realizing that I didn't need to do that. And I'd be far happier if I didn't. And I found ways of making money that were a bit more kind of humane. And uh, yeah, so that, those are kind of like my two main things. Of, and, and, and in the time that you have on, you know, this, I guess, is kind of playing into that kind of neoliberal thinking. But the, in the spare time that you do have and the time that you kind of get back, um, from not kind of giving it to your employer free of charge, you know, creating the kind of alternatives that you want to see in the world. So whether that's working with like campaign groups or, you know, just in any kind of small way. And actually I found that doing that myself has been not just like, not just in a kind of like creative or kind of like professional sense, but just in a sense of like well-being. It makes you feel better because you feel like you're doing something constructive and it feels like you're actually not having all your time stolen off you and... So those are my kind of two, but there's lots more as well. But I can't kind of write that. That's sort of half the book, because like how you actually steal stuff back. So. Can I come back to it? Or is there loads of others? Um, no. Do it. All right. Okay. <laughs>
Yeah, I've just been on a retreat, and I've just come back from a retreat, and I, they, they do this spiel about how you retransition to the world, which feels quite scary when you've been meditating all week and mm -hmm. in silence. And I, I asked, you know, what am I going to do? Because a Buddhist retreat, you're supposed to um, love everybody, be full of loving kindness and stuff. And I said, what, how, what am I going to do about Brexit when I get back? And the rage that I feel about that, and the rage that I feel about Farage. And um, the, the, woman, the woman I was speaking to said, um, take as much of it as you can take, but don't feel like you have to get immersed in it to the point you go insane. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what was it she said? Just do as much. Every decision should be based on, is this helpful to you? Mm -hmm. And do a little bit of kindness to others mm -hmm. in some small way. So I think that's kind of what mm -hmm. you're saying, yep. is live a life that, that allows you to be sane, but mm -hmm. also help in some small way as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Hiya. Hi. Um, I love your book. It's so oh, good. Oh, my you. God, it is thank so you. good. Um, <laughs> But yeah, my question, I think things I really enjoyed in the book were like, you talk a lot about like the ironic detachment that people have taken mm -hmm. and also like the co-option of radical language about kind of community. Yes. Um, and like, I've been out canvassing for Labour this week and I was like, it's going to be so good. Like, I'll just tell everyone about Labour's great policies. And I was like on the doorsteps being like, but yeah, but they want to do this and they want to do that and they want to do this. And I found that actually like that ironic detachment and the kind of cynical co-option of radical language means that people were just like, meh, um, I don't really yeah. think that's gonna happen, like I'm not interested, I don't, I'm not buying into that. And I just wondered how you thought like the left could respond to that challenge and kind of like, get, yeah, like try and challenge that, like the capitalist realism world yeah. that we're now living in as we try and campaign, or as like some of us try and campaign for Labour. Yeah. I think I, that, is the, that, that is the question to answer. I don't have, I mean, I've tried in my small way to kind of offer some suggestions on how we can get around that, and I think it is the big problem. I also canvass lots for the party, and I've had exactly the same experience of this this, this sense that like nothing better can happen. This is just the reality that we have. And again, that's that is what we, I talk about in terms of the neoliberalism, in terms of just supplanting it. It's like this is the natural order of the world. This is how it is, and it it absolutely isn't. There are other countries that do not operate in this way at all. You know, the Nordic countries do not operate in this way. Um, and this isn't, we don't have to accept this, but how you, how you chip away at that malaise and that sense of just like, just um, that this is inevitable, that we can't escape it, is a, is a big, big question. I think what, one thing that I've been finding really interesting recently is, obviously Ash Sarker, who's just been doing amazing work, but she was on TV recently talking about how like, you think, because I think part of like the kind of Tory mentality, and I'm sorry if there's any Tories in the room, but the kind of what underpins it is this idea that there's a perfect meritocracy, and I've got here, I've got here under my own steam, and I've got here because I deserve to be here. And there's also this aspiration, there's this sense of like, well, I don't want you to vilify the the millionaires and the billionaires because some small part of us thinks that maybe one day we could aspire to being a millionaire or billionaire. And what she's been doing really well on TV is debunking that idea to people and explaining to them just how unlikely it is that you will ever be one of those people. <laughs> and they're like, you'd have to be making, you know, they said to me like, you'd have to be making a, a pound every four seconds for the next four months to become a millionaire. You'd have to be doing that for the next 
like 500 years or something to be a billionaire. You know, it, it's not happy. It's not going to happen to you. It's not. And so you should be voting for a system that that makes your life that bit easier. You know, that kind of alleviates the burden slightly and gives you a kind of like that makes the kind of like threshold to like basic security and stability a bit lower so that all of us just feel that kind of instinctively. Um, so that's one way I think is kind of like debunking a lot of these kind of ideas that, you know, it's all to play for. You too can have a slice of this life because it's, it's bollocks. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's not technically a swear word. It's, a, it's anatomical. Um, sorry. So. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned um, Raheem Sterling buying a house for, for his mother. Yeah. There's actually two foot, young footballers at Manchester City, Ryan's black, the other one was white. Yeah. And some people might find it hard to believe, but in the Daily Mail, that it was a very negative story about Ryan Sterling. But Foden, the other, the white young footballer, it was written in a positive light. Um, but that brings me back to what journals like that do. They tend to set working class people against each other and I think there is yeah. the problem yeah. okay. because the, the working classes or the workers in this country far, far outnumber the people like Boris Johnson and yet for some reason he's and others before him have been uh, able to get them on, on, on their side and by the time they realise they've blundered it's, it, it's too late. Yeah. Um, and and I, 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 I can't see why that can't be overcome. In, other than that, I think when working class people do well for themselves, like footballers, have always become targets. They get ridiculed by, by their own or where they came from. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is also not something... In America it doesn't happen, for example, they tend to pat them on the back. Yeah. Um, so. uh, one, one, I mean, the most frustrating thing for me is that how successful the right were in scapegoating immigrants for policy failures so if you know the reason you didn't have a job or the reason you you know you were struggling to survive or the reason why you couldn't pay your mortgage or you couldn't provide for your kids were, were policy failures it was it was about you know among other things like the collapse of industry etc there wasn't like the same number of jobs or whatever and i get i I get very, very personally upset about how successful they were in scapegoating immigrants for that and saying, actually, it's because so-and-so down the road stole your job, which is n nonsense, it's not true. But it, it was so successful. that that's, And that's what underscores all of Boris Johnson's kind of like working-class popularity, because there's still a huge working-class Tory vote. Um, and I don't know... It seems like it's so obvious that it, was a, you know, that it was a ploy, that it was a way to kind of like win, you know, to win... And yet, for some reason, it seems almost impossible to kind of get that message across. And I guess it's because you're kind of going up against the Daily Mail and the Murdoch franchise and all the rest of it. That's one problem. The other thing I completely agree with you about the kind of um, the division and like pitting the working class against itself. I think that part of the problem with like neoliberalism was that to incentivize more people to kind of follow the call of social mobility and to kind of individualize and take on the burden of aspiration themselves in order to kind of like lift themselves up and therefore you know, help the economy or whatever, they had to demonise the working class, right? They had to say, well, being a working class person is, is scummy and dirty and disgusting and awful, so you don't want to be that. You've got to try and aspire to the middle class now. And in doing that, they created a horrible kind of caricature of the working class that was set in the kind of, like, 1970s. And, like, the working class, they kept typifying as this sort of, like, white racist man who went to work in men's clubs and got into fights and all the rest of it. And that's kind of... That's been the sort of, like... You know, I get very, very angry when they're kind of like when the working class is kind of characterised in the way of Tommy Robinson. Like Tommy Robinson is one very, very, very 
tiny exception who does not represent the working class. And what it does is it actually whitewashes over the experiences of many, you know, millions of non-white people who are working class. But also, it kind of, like you say, pits them against one another, and it prevents them from having a kind of like collective working class identity that can galvanise, that can get behind a kind of a movement or, you know, that will strive to kind of improve conditions for the working class. And it's, it, it's deliberately fragmentary. It deliberately tries to kind of like divide the working class so that it can't um, organise and it can't self-identify and can't therefore fight for the things that would be in its interests, I think. We probably have time for one minute Sorry. more questions. Sorry. <laughs> um, Hi. Uh, I actually have two questions. Um, short one, can you yeah. talk about Florence and the Machine, I don't have anything personal against Florence and the Machine, but you're not the first person to ask me about that. Have you read the book? Have you, have you, read, my, have you read the book? Oh, okay, right, yeah, okay, because I just, I was going to say, I didn't know whether you just personally had an issue with Florence and the Machine and you wanted to my room. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, because, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know why I, I have you, have mentioned that band a couple of times in the book, just because it seemed to exemplify, it seemed to exemplify for me like where culture had got, you know, this is a kind of aristocratic woman whose family works in like, you know, the operations of the, of the kind of cultural industries or whatever. Um, and that was a kind of person who was prospering and succeeding. Um, but nothing personal against her. And she was, she's just kind of exemplary of a wider phenomenon. Um, I just, I guess it was because she was just so famous and she did so well. Um, and she seemed kind of um, emblematic of a kind of generation and a generation in culture. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's no... What, no worse than all the other kind of culprits, I suppose. Um, I guess, actually, no, sorry, there is one thing I don't like about... <laughs> I, I, like, I, I really hate Victoriana, and I think it's... Um, and, like, kind of, and, like, boho... Like, kind of, like, it's conspicuously, like, boho aesthetics, which I think kind of have their origins in something that is very, very elitist, um, that, but, like, likes to pose as something more liberal and more kind of open-minded or and. Uh, so I, I have a problem with those aesthetics, and I have a problem with the kind of faux nostalgia of any kind of Victorian or any kind of like boho. Um, so I think that's probably why she came in for more of a grilling than other people. <laughs> that's um, that's maybe ties into the kind of taste and power thing that I was talking about before as well. Um, Brexit, uh, yes, yeah. So another thing that I write about as well is how like what the working class have often been characterized as the kind of like disaffected and the like and therefore like the most racist and the ones who've been able to kind of like who or who have been um who have been driving this kind of like racist xenophobic closed border kind of mentality or whatever when actually it's just as it's just as common in the kind of like in the middle class um in middle class culture as well um, and how kind of that gets a free pass a lot of the time. So kind of people being like racist over like a bottle of Cote de Rhone with their, like in the quiet confines of their home with their friends is kind of socially acceptable. Um, but then the, they're free to kind of paint the working class as the kind of like sole arbiters of this, like of this racist culture in Britain, which I think is um, wrong and false, which isn't to you know, play down the fact that there are obviously problems with racism within working class communities in the UK as well. Um, and on the Brexit, sorry, I'm just, I can't remember what the point was about Brexit, the final, sorry. It's just 
the way in which that narrative has been painted by yeah. the very dominant, by the 88% percent yeah. indicated media. And it, it's even John Harris, who I respect a lot, mm -hmm. he will go to Margate or he will go to an ex-industrial town. He won't go to the home counties. Yeah, Paris, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, mean, I just I, I agree with you. I think that it's basically being it's it's, well, it's just another case of the working class basically being scapegoated for a problem. It's saying that it's this kind of disaffected working class vote. And again, I mean, I'm from Birmingham, um, and a, a large most of Birmingham didn't vote for Brexit. There were a couple of exceptional seats which were a surprise, and obviously they were. Um, they, they were like mainly white, like white communities, um, but like most of them didn't vote uh, leave. Um, yeah, didn't vote leave. Sorry. Um, so, but I just think again, it's just it's just more working class kind of scapegoating of saying that they're they're to blame for this. Um, on on the flip side of that, I would say that I do think that the the way that you solve Brexit isn't to just like I personally think that the way you solve Brexit isn't to just like reverse the decision and say you know we're not we're now not doing Brexit. I think the answer is to go back to the people, but I do think that you have to go back to people obviously being far more informed, but also with more hope and more optimism. And actually, if we had a, if we had a government in power that said, actually, what if you could get a job that pays your family and the price of your house wasn't too expensive and you could have basic access to services and all those things aren't going to be taken away from you and you could still use them in the way that you know we used to be able to use them in the past, would you still vote to leave? And I think you... I think, people would vote overwhelmingly to remain. But I think that you have to kind of go back to people, empower them, say that the issues that they've been dealing with and the issues that they've felt disaffected by will be solved or will, be, you know, will at least help to kind of like alleviate them and then say to people, would you still vote to leave? And I think then you'd get the answer that people want to remain. But I don't think you're just kind of saying, kind of re like reversing the democratic outcome of that um, election, unfortunately. But, I mean, well, that's, um, that's a really... I think hopefully, hopeful, hopeful um, yeah. to end on. Um, yeah. Thank you all so much for coming and for the really lovely questions. That was a really nice uh, broad range of topics there. Um, I think there is one copy left of the book. Yeah, excellent. So if you would like to pick it up uh, while Natalie's still here. Um, otherwise, we'll be back on the 24th of November with Ruth Kinner talking about anarchy, um, one of my favourite topics. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. Natalie. No, thanks really for coming. Nice. Thank you.